Are you new to North Shore? Do you forget things that happened more than a week ago? Do you want to fully engage in Missions Week? Do you like fun recaps? If you answered yes to any of these, then this review is for you. Now, you might ask, why do we do Missions Week? Shouldn't it be Missions Life? Well, yes, but it's important sometimes to refocus on our priorities. And pretty clearly, one of them should be reaching others. It was so important to Jesus that he died for it, for us. So let's refocus on the importance of missions as we examine what we learned before. Two years ago during Missions Week, we first learned to see, wrestling with the concept of who the gospel is for and challenging our own ideas. We learned about Peter coming to a different understanding of the gospel as he allowed the spirit to work in his heart, teaching him to see things he already knew in a new way and seeking the same thing for ourselves. Last year, we learned to speak as we saw the Spirit working. As we examined Peter's journey towards communicating with people who are critical of what the Holy Spirit was doing in him, he responded in love and thoughtfulness, even when it was a difficult situation, when tension was around him and people were divided. Not like we know what that's like today. His speaking out brought freedom to many people, and we practiced this ourselves. So now that we know more about how to see and how to speak, please join us as we learn to be. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Sounds like you went ahead and got the buckets. If you haven't done that, go ahead and do that. You can pass the buckets now. And um, also, let me call forth the, uh, the ushers with the Bibles. If you need a Bible, put your hand up. And we're going to turn today to Acts 15. That's the text for this week's, this year's uh, missions conference. So Acts 15 is where we'll turn. If you go in your Bible apps, uh, turn there as well with us. Let me also uh, mention this. This week in your life groups, would you please make sure that you get this curriculum, which will help your life group uh, focus on the things that we're talking about and fellowshipping around this week as a church. This um, curriculum, there's been a lot of thought and prayer put into it, and I think it's a very useful tool for us to enter into fellowship. Um, that's kind of a theme for me, entering into fellowship and having fellowship. Um, and it's really, uh, I know it's important to all of us, but sometimes we don't think about why we enter into fellowship. There's a very important and critical reason why we do that. Because the Lord reserves his spirit and his presence from us in significant ways if we don't enter into fellowship. Unfortunately for us, who would rather be isolated and go about it alone, uh, because I've got enough mess in my life to deal with, it's difficult to also deal with the mess in other people's lives, and fellowship requires that. Uh, Lord, would you just make yourself present to me alone? Uh, that would be sufficient. And his answer is no, typically no. I, I'm asking you to do it through fellowship, and I'm revealing myself to you through others. And it's a kind of messy process. We struggle. We fight, we strive for fellowship. And it's not just merely friendship, it goes beyond that because it involves the work of the Holy Spirit. And so this is a tool to develop in us true fellowship and the Lord makes himself present with us. That's a precursor to heaven. That's a precursor to what we will enjoy with purity in heaven. What's the opposite of heaven? Hell. Hell is complete and utter isolation. Complete and utter isolation where there's no, where there's no fellowship. If anyone will say, I will not bow to his, his lordship, I will be my own lord, 
then you will be in a place where you can have your pitiful kingdom of one. No two in hell will commiserate because commiseration is consolation, it's comfort. No two can say we are in pain. So the opposite is to participate in heaven now and participate in fellowship. Anyway, this is a tool that I think can help with that. And so I hope you'll get it. Again, this week, Acts 15, that's where we're going. If you think back just five chapters, Nancy already mentioned this. You don't have to turn back, but if you think back, we see Peter getting a vision from the Lord, which he can't quite understand. And then soon after, a man named Cornelius comes to him. Cornelius was not a Jew. He was a Roman soldier of the Italian cohort. He's an Italian there in a town called Joppa. And there uh, Peter is, and and he's sent to Peter. And the Holy Spirit prompts him to preach the gospel to this Gentile. Well, Gentiles, of course, are non-Jews. The Jews, as we know, are people who, uh, in the first century, they followed the Mosaic law. They're fiercely protective of their culture against Roman oppression and tyranny. They are fierce worshipers of their God and refuse to mix the worship of their God with any of the other Roman or Greek deities. They are a holy nation, you remember, called out of Egypt long ago, set aside for the worship of Yahweh alone, and they will not have it mixed. And they protect this, again, through their laws and rituals and through their culture. Well, Cornelius is an Italian. He's uh, what the New Testament calls a God-fearer. We, fe- we find a couple of these people in the New Testament. Cornelius is one. Lydia at Philippi was another, as we've already seen her in our series in uh, Philippians. They were God-fearers. They were non-Jews who respected and apparently worshipped the God of Israel and rejected other gods, although they hadn't fully converted to Judaism. But they recognized that the God of Israel was the true God. And so Paul, in his missionary journeys, we see his uh, MO is to always go, as he goes to a new town or a new city, to go to the the local synagogue, the local Jewish community. And he preaches the gospel there because Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the King of the Jews. He was sent to the holy people that God had set aside to be their final and ultimate king, to lead them into their eternal kingdom, back into the presence of God. Just as Moses led the children of Israel, was used to lead the children of Israel back into the promised land, so just as humanity had been kicked out of the garden because of sin, the final and ultimate king, the Messiah, would lead us back into the heavenly presence of God. And so that's who Jesus was. And of course, that was a message for the Jews. The Gentiles didn't understand that. They didn't even have a culture that had categories for that. So what use is it to preach the gospel to Gentiles? It's a totally different language that they can't grasp. Well, the Spirit prompts Peter to do this, and he preaches to Cornelius and some other God-fearers, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they believe, and they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they are not observing the Mosaic Law, which is mind-blowing to the apostles, and it totally revolutionizes their their ministry. Uh, And and the same thing as I was saying with with Paul, as he would go to these towns, he would preach in the synagogue, and then he would often go to the God-fearers, and he had much more success with Gentiles. So ironic, this Pharisee, he calls himself a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He is, he follows this religion, you know, down to its most basic uh, levels, and yet he finds more fruit uh, among Gentiles.
So that's what we see, and this leads to a controversy that we read about in Acts 15, 1 through 21. So let me read it. Turn there, Acts 15. I'll read verses 1 through 21. Luke tells us this. Some men came down from Judea and were preach, uh, teaching the brothers, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together and considered this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, we are putting God to... Uh, Therefore, why are we putting God to the test by placing a yoke on their neck of, on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore, uh, restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble these Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So in that last part, James, this is the brother of Jesus, right? James is the half-brother of Jesus. He's the son of Mary the leader of the church of Jerusalem, he gives these directions that the Gentiles should abstain from sexual immorality and things strangled, that's kind of odd, and from blood. This all has to do with pagan rituals, which would have been very common to them, even the sexual immorality. You might think, well, of course, abstain from sexual immorality, that's a no-brainer, but when it's part of your culture and how you practice your civic duties, things like temple prostitution, right? Those are the sorts of things that are so foreign to us, are so odd, were common to them. And it was part of the way that you live life. You show patriotism. And so in order to be a Christian, in some ways, they had to emphasize that you're going to have to live an uncomfortably countercultural life. You're going to be questioned on your patriotism, on your commitment um, to our city and, and to our nation and to our values and these sorts of things. So what's happening in this controversy? You've got these Christians who were Pharisees still. These were people who 
researched, taught, and kept the law of Moses. And they didn't fully seem to grasp the gospel, at least not the gospel as taught by the apostles. Now, the gospel, I got a chance to, to uh, teach through that a couple weeks ago if you heard that. But at its core, it's this idea that we are condemned to sin, uh, we are condemned uh, rather to death because of sin. Because of sin, it's this poison that is active in us. It's this moral poison. And we're condemned to death. What's the proof? I can tell you what the death rate in this room is. It's 100%, right? There's none of us that's going to get past that hurdle unscathed. Each one of us. Why is it that we all die? The biblical answer is we are condemned to death because of sin. That's the reason. That's the bad news. The gospel is good news. What's the good news? Jesus Christ, out of his sheer love, took our sin upon himself on the cross. That's the atonement. And so he took our sin, which is killing us, on himself because he was able to bear it when we're not. It wasn't, it wasn't powerful enough to kill him. It kills us. It's not powerful enough to kill him. He took it on himself, and then he didn't just leave us morally empty and expect us to earn our, um, uh, our salvation on our own by our own means. No, that's never going to happen. He gave us his righteousness. He gave us his righteousness, and by his righteousness, we now share in his eternal life. His righteousness is what gives us eternal life. So that's the gospel. So in the atonement, our sin is taken by Jesus and his righteousness is given to us and there's no place for earning anything else, for earning any rightness with God. We don't prove ourselves to God. In fact, to even try is to misunderstand what the gospel is. Apparently, these Pharisees, who we also have come to uh, ascribe the name Judaizers, didn't fully grasp this. They thought that there was some room for earning righteousness and that you have to at least be circumcised and you have to ob obey the law of Moses. Otherwise, you can't be saved. So they added additional hurdles. So they didn't entirely understand the gospel. They associated their familiar religious practice, practices with Christian holiness. And so this is why they were Judaizers. Now, we might think, well, that's so foreign to us. None of us are Pharisees or um, I don't know about you, most of us don't observe the law of Moses and all its dietary commands and these sorts of things and do temple sacrifices. There isn't even an operating temple to do that anymore, right? But we still fall into this practice of Judaizing at times when we put other requirements on people as we share with them the gospel. For example, they might be our sort of native religious sentiments that really aren't entailed by the gospel or our sort of familiar customs this happens a lot. Western missionaries sometimes have difficulty distinguishing between the gospel and the entailments, the holy entailments of the gospel and how it should transform our lives and just what's a familiar custom for us as Westerners. Here's a little trivial example. It's not a big deal, but in the West, we all know this custom. If you don't know this custom, you've got to learn it very quickly because you're going to be odd if you don't know this custom. When you meet somebody, it's proper to greet them. It's improper to be cold and aloof. You don't do that. So you need to greet them. Well, what's the Western greeting? You put out your hand, you look them right in the eye, shake their hand firmly, not too firm, not too weakly. You gotta practice this. You learn this as a child. First you look down as a child and your parents say, look up, put your hand out. You know, you learn to do this. That's the right way of greeting someone. That's our custom. In the East, they don't do that at all. They don't do that at all. Touching somebody you just met, isn't that a little bit forward? Have you ever thought about that? We just met, I'm going to touch you. That's strange. We don't think it's strange. They wouldn't do that. Hands go down. And out of respect, we bow. I'm not going to look you right in the eye. That's a little bit invasive, right? 
So which one is the proper Christian greeting? Which one is the right way for Christians to meet or, or for you to greet anyone else? Well, you would say, well, clearly they're, they're different. They're different customs. Judaizers don't see it that way. In the Bible, they greeted with a holy kiss. How would you feel about that? I've been in places where they greet with a holy kiss. I, I felt a little bit uncomfortable. It was a little bit strange. I'm not used to that. Judaizers associate, misassociate their customs and their opinions and things like that with true holiness. And sometimes we're tempted to do this. Think about this. Do we sometimes confuse the gospel with our political opinions? Now, our political opinions should be challenged by the gospel. They should be reformed. They should be baptized. Sometimes they're contrary to the gospel, and other Christians are right to call us out on that. But sometimes we expect others to not only receive the gospel, but receive our, again, our political notions and things like that, and that is not a burden that we should be putting on others. What is the right way to be a Christian? Well, you look at the flag. There's our flag. There's other flags, but we look at this one. Notice it's the highest one. We put it, we put it in a privileged uh, spot. And to that flag, I say the Pledge of Allegiance because I am a patriotic American. I'm happy to do that. Jesus never did that. He's not an American citizen. So why would that be an expectation on others? Now, you might say these are sort of strange, trivial examples, but Judaizers find ways to do this. Uh, so this is a perennial problem in missions as, as uh, our testimonies will, um, uh, will make clear the amazing work of the atonement, as I said, leads to the resurrection. And when we teach the pure gospel in the atonement, we see the power of the resurrection. The apostles saw this with their eyes. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And so you've seen the, the resurrection power in your heart. But those who have, again, um, uh, not witnessed the power of the resurrection cannot grasp the atonement, and it remains confusing to them. Uh, to illustrate that, I want to introduce Jonathan Kobayashi of Jesus Online Ministries. Uh, Jesus Online Ministries is an online ministry helping people around the world discover, receive, and follow Jesus wholeheartedly and share him with others. Jonathan serves the ministry as discipleship pastor, overseeing its efforts to help make multiplying disciples of Jesus. Through uh, uh, many websites, People uh, send us comments. Recently, we received this comment from Daniel. He writes, at eight, uh, 81 years of age, I have always been a borderline atheist. No matter how much I read the Bible or how many times I went to church, there was nothing there that convinced me about Jesus' resurrection. I believed he existed as a man, a good man, but maybe he never died on the cross. He was nursed back and was able to show himself to his disciples and others again. Your article brought tears to my eyes and convinced me without a doubt that he did come back from the dead to establish his kingdom. Wow. You see, without the full understanding of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Even the gospel, the stories of Jesus can be very confusing. And so Daniel was missing something, the full understanding of the gospel, and that is the, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. We use ads uh, to promote our websites. 
through God's Spirit, Daniel happened to find one of our websites and came to read the article titled, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? And as he was reading the article, the Holy Spirit really convinced and convicted his heart and truly changed his life. And that is the ministry that uh, we get to do, not only to present Jesus, but sometimes uh, people come to our websites looking for the clarity and the full understanding of the gospel. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. So these Judaizers, they pretended to care for the Gentiles and want their salvation. They just wanted what was best for them. So I want you to follow the Mosaic Law so that you can have salvation too. In reality, they were serving their own egos. They were not serving God, and they didn't have the Gentiles' best interests in mind. If they did, they would have respected the fact that the Holy Spirit had come on them and given the gift of salvation to them even though they didn't observe the Mosaic Law. They knew that just as the apostles knew it, but still they wouldn't accept it. They expected others to conform to their own draconian version of the gospel, their law-abiding and self-earned righteousness. And the apostles said, no way. We won't be conformed to your own sort of culturally set, narrow version of the gospel, but we will be transformed by the gospel. So the gospel challenges us, no doubt. It transforms. The Judaizers knew that. They said, we're all right. You be transformed. But what we have to recognize is that while we might be able to be in a position to see other people's blindness, just respect the fact humbly that they can see our blindnesses too. And suppose in Christian love they tell us and they challenge our values. They challenge our commitments. They challenge culture, uh, customs that are familiar to us and point point out that they are inconsistent with the gospel. That's offensive to us. We often don't want to hear that. We often don't respect that. And so the gospel transforms not just them, but also us. But it doesn't just transform. It also brings about reconciliation between cultures with others that are strange and speak with weird words that we don't understand and wear funny hats and observe certain days and customs and holidays that we don't understand. The gospel does not homogenize a single culture, but baptizes and purifies a bouquet of cultures for God's glory. So John, when he was uh, on Patmos, he was in a little dark cave, and God revealed to him not just a revelation, but the revelation. So we read in Revelation 7, 9 through 10, John says this. He says, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every, every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So the gospel both transforms them and us, and it reconciles us. And these different customs and cultures and things become baptized. They become consistent with the gospel. And we recognize that they are tools of God's glory, which are foreign to us. They're unfamiliar to us, but they still are part of that bouquet of praise to God. So here's our final question. Given these realities, how can we be a church that is inviting to others, not homogenized, 
not naturally, merely seeking a sort of shallow fellowship with others who speak the same way and think the same way and have the same values, but reaching out across these boundaries just as the apostles were taught to do. How do we um, resist the temptation to become Judaizers? I think here's the key, and it comes down to, again, the apostolic understanding of how salvation was gained on our behalf. It was not gained through our works. God is not impressed by your spiritual works, and he has no need of them. He can use them for his purposes and invigorate them and give them greater fruit and, and importance and bearing and impact than uh, they would ever have in themselves, but he has no need of them. He's able to bring these things about sovereignly by his own power and by his own will, but still he loves us and he uses us. And so understand that we are saved, as the apostles teach, by grace, through God's graciousness, because Jesus merely loved us. He took our sin on himself and he gave us his righteousness, and we have nothing to add to it. That totally is a, is a huge affront. That's, a, that's an enormous affront to our native religious sens uh, sentiments. It just is. I remember having this experience when I first became a believer. So I was raised in a very secular home. My father was a nominal Hindu. My mother nominal Catholic. So there really wasn't even any, any chance for religious agreement or any sort of spiritual education or anything like that. It was just a very secular home. And when I started in, in college, some people challenged me with the gospel, so I decided to look into it. And one night, I don't know why, I read the Gospel of John, and I saw the power of the resurrection. All, all I can tell you is that this is an experience that I had, and I was just in tears. I mean, it overwhelmed me. It's just ugly tears, you know, with like snot and everything. So it was really bad. It was a crisis. Uh, it wasn't... Um, I love Jesus, and Jesus loves me, and now my life is good. It was a crisis, and I thought, I've made a terrible decision. Many, maybe you have had that experience as well. Coming to Jesus is, in, in many ways, it seems like this is not what I want to do. This is the wrong decision because now it begins to transform and revolutionize your life in very uncomfortable and unsettling ways. Well, one thing that I was not ready for is that in my previous life, I had sometimes felt some embarrassment about my sin. I had felt a little bit of regret, but nothing ever significant to ever make me stop. I didn't really know what my sin was. I didn't know what it was doing to me, and I didn't know how offensive and painful it was to God. The Holy Spirit grieves over our sins. The Holy Spirit is the only one who appropriately responds to our sin. And we participate in the Holy Spirit's grieving when he's bringing us to repentance. He allows us to feel a bit of what he experiences in grieving over our sins. And as I realized what I had done and the effect that it had on me and my relationship with the God who loved me and created me, it broke me down. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't hardly bear it. So I immediately began negotiating with God. Maybe you've had this experience if you've just really hurt somebody and you realize what you did and you say, oh my goodness, I was so hurtful to this person. I didn't even realize it at the time. I was being so self-centered I couldn't even see what I did to them, and now I realize. And you become very, very sorrowful. And then you beg them, what can I do? I'm so sorry. What can I do? I feel so bad for what I've done. And the worst thing that you can hear is, there's nothing you can do. There's literally nothing you can do. Sometimes others say that out of pride because they, they don't want you. God tells us there's nothing that you can do, not because he's prideful, but because it's true. There's nothing that we can do. 
if you think that there's something that you can do, you don't understand the love and the graciousness that he's expressed to us, and that is offensive to our religious sentiments. So we have to check that self, we have to check that in ourselves and in one another when we're in fellowship. We have to be able to deny that natural sort of religious intuition to say, what can I do? We always want to do the right things and earn our salvation and earn our righteousness and pay our own way spiritually. And that's not how this works. We live by his righteousness. His righteousness is the payment. And so we simply have to humbly receive that. And once you do that, now you can be so charitable and forgiving of others as they're struggling through things in the same way, in different cultures, with a different language, with different customs, and we can make a distinction between the gospel and these other things. And we can work in these missionary situations such that these other things are baptized and also become uh, elements of praise to God. So with that, uh, we want to turn to our final testimony. This is a video testimony from Pastor Henry and uh, Lonnie uh, Pagawitan, uh, Pagawitan, who serve as pastors in Christ Church Ortigas, and that's in Metro Manila. Hello, my name is Henry Pagawitan, and I am the pastor of Christ Church Ortigas. My wife, Lani, and I are church planters here in Metro Manila the capital of the Philippines and missionaries of North Shore Christian Church. The Philippines proudly boasts to be the only Christian nation in Asia. The question is, is there any truth to this claim? According to the recent statistics, more than 82% of the population is Roman Catholic, 4% belong to various nationalized Christian cults, and another 8% belong to well over 100 Christian denominations. In addition to this, there is a vigorous 4% Muslim minority concentrated on the southern island of Mindanao, Sulu, and Palawan. Scattered in isolated mountainous regions, the remaining 1% follow non-Western indigenous beliefs and practices. The Chinese minority, although statistically insignificant, has been culturally influential in coloring Filipino Catholicism with many of the beliefs and practices of Buddhism, Taoism, and Confucianism. With all these facts, we can almost see the challenges and demands to bring the true gospel of Jesus Christ. For an engineer, it's better to build a new one than to renovate. And apparently, this is the case for us in the mission field. A lot to be undone before one can actually understand the true gospel. We need them to realize that the grace of Jesus is enough for them to be saved. Think somehow the same during the first church in Acts chapter 15, issues arise when Jews wants the Gentiles to adopt certain laws. It seems that they want the Gentiles to adhere their laws and tradition. The culture of the Filipinos is deeply rooted to their religion. The Filipino people have rich cultural heritage. Indeed, the words of missiologist Stephen Neal still ring true. He said, there has never yet been a great religion which did not find its expression in a great culture. There has never yet been a great culture which did not have deep roots in a religion. Filipinos are very religious and their religion does not exist in a vacuum. It is closely linked to their cultural values. Social observers have not overlooked this closeness. However, this religious belief somehow becomes the great barrier towards acceptance of the true gospel. I would cite three challenges. The first one is confusion. It's hard for a Filipino to fully understand grace since they are accustomed to earn whatever they want in life. 
a typical Filipino child experiences this as an, at an early age, where parents or guardians will tell them to be good or else God will get mad at them. During Christmas, Santa Claus is coming to town. It's a very popular Christmas carols. Traditional religion mostly involves rituals and other rules and guidelines so that one may be at peace with the Creator. During Holy Week, a lot still go through penitence just to forgive for the forgiveness of sins. Some actually perform the act of crucifixion. Others will go through deep sorrow because for them, God is dead. By the time someone introduces grace to them, a lot of struggles and confusion because for them, it's unbelievable. The second thing is addition. Just like most of Asian religion, tradition also dictates that any spiritual being are God-like. Even saints are God, and so as any dead people. Some even attend awake of a dead person just to whisper any prayers hoping the dead will tell the real God. So with all the gods somehow, adding Jesus is not that big deal. Lastly, it's about tradition. And there is the tradition. As I have said, Filipino culture is deeply rooted to its religion. For most families, preserving tradition is more important than transformation. Observing traditions like feast, of a saint or offering of food to the spirits are important even if one is not morally upright. One time, a youth from a traditional family found Jesus in, in his life. Changes happened and his parents were not happy about it. They told him to stop going to the Christian church and the boy argued to them saying, would you rather see me gambling and have social drinking all the time than have these challenges because I found faith in Jesus? The parents ended up knowing Jesus themselves. Another objection that I heard all the time is telling Christians to back off. Since they born that way and they will die that way. Our argument to them is if you were born poor, would you die also poor? These are the struggles and we in the church are trying to address. The only effective way that I know is true relationship because it happened to me. I was born in a traditional family, raised in their ways, even attended their school, and I met Christians and became my friend. I argued about laws and tradition. After a long period of time, I understood grace and accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Relationship is the key to battle these struggles in Filipino mission field. Thank you so much. At mabuhay kayo lahat.